Okay, we're going into the book of Jude today, of course. Verse number 12 will be our camping ground uh, today. Verse number 12. Actually, verse number 12a. If you took any kind of clubs, you know, like Awana clubs, or even I noticed the peewees do this too. The, they, they go with A and B and things like that. So we're on A, uh, verse 12a. No, sorry, 13 and A. We did verse 12. 12, these are men who are hidden reefs in your love feast. When they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam. That's 13a. I meant to say 13. Wandering stars from whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. None of these are pretty pictures, are they? The description of false teachers here, those who have crept in, all the way from verse number 4, these people have crept in, and uh, like I said, I call them false teachers, because that's usually where they, they end up, because they're people that have influence, and they're people with some sort of uh, ability to to gain followers, and that's what Peter says they are. They're people with many followers, and generally in a church setting, that would be someone in the teaching department, maybe even the pastor or elders among us, but, but generally when we see somebody with that kind of capability of getting followers, we say, hey, you know, if they're sound theologically and such, we ask them, would you consider teaching a class or something like that? We put them in charge of things. Because of the way they are. And so, I'm going to call them false teachers. That doesn't only mean that they're teachers. All right? They could be anybody who has a group of followers. But these who influence many have crept in. And uh, their plans for the church are not good. They're here to destroy. Just mark that in your thinking. They're not here to benefit. They're not here to edify. They're here to tear apart. Um, there's a passage in John chapter 10. You could travel over there with me for a minute. Just keep your bookmark right here. But in John chapter 10, Jesus gave a simple picture uh, that anybody who's a shepherd would understand it pretty well. But in John chapter 10, starting in verse number 1, It starts, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. Generally, the the scene of the shepherd's fold was, more times than not, it was rocks in, in three sides of a square, if you will. They would pile up a rock wall here or there, or maybe even go into a cavern of some kind where they could shelter them with sides around them so the sheep don't get out. Whatever the case would be, they'd have only one entrance and one exit, and that was it. And the shepherd would actually lay across that entrance. He was the door, and the sheep would not go out or go in except unless he lets them in. And so if you're there to rob the sheep, you certainly don't go up to the door and say to the shepherd, I come here to rob your sheep. 
Right? That's not the way you do it. You sneak in some other way. You go over the wall. You jump in somehow. And this is where Jesus starts his picture. He says, some climb up other way. He is a thief and a robber. Well, the way Jude said that was certain men have crept in unnoticed. J. Vernon McGee said to get in, they got in by the side or slipped in through the side door. So we keep our doors locked on the sides. You notice that? If you're here five minutes late for the service, you got to ask Steve or somebody to let you in through the front door because uh, we don't want false teachers in here, do we? (laughs) But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. Watch verse 5. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Notice something simple. The sheep do not attack the stranger. They run from him. When I lived in Butler, Indiana, we had a guy in the church who... Had sheep. We thought that was so cool. We had a shepherd in the church, and we'd go over to see his sheep. Those sheep would not come to us. We were nice people. We'd stand there and try to coax them over to our side. They wouldn't come. But the minute they saw him, they came. And it was just an amazing sight to see. But here, they run away. And that's what even the picture is that we're working on here in Jude. We're not to attack the the strangers um, Work to keep away from false teachers. This figure of speech Jesus spoke to them. They did not understand what those things which uh, were which he was saying to them. So Jesus said again to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And mark that, would you, in your thinking? That's their desire. They do not leave it better when they leave, do they? They do not make anything better than the way they found it. They kill, they steal, they destroy. And Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. So you could go through this passage and then highlight verse number 12 while you're at it. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. What you desire, and I know it's true because it's true of churches, You desire a pastor who cares for the welfare of the sheep. That's what you want. A job of a pastor is as under-shepherd. Do you know that? According to Peter, 1 Peter 5, verse number 2, the under-shepherd works for the shepherd. We shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, exercising oversight, but not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, And you don't lord it over those who are allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples of the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, we're just holding the sheep until he comes. 
We're helping and nourishing and feeding and protecting until he comes. And the chief shepherd is coming. I like that. Well, Jesus goes on, as you know, in John 10. You could read the passage later. He's talking about himself being the good shepherd. The good shepherd. Over and over again, he says he's the good shepherd. So it comes down to something real simple. And that is, we need to trust the Lord, our true shepherd. There are dangers out there, right? Many, many, many dangers out there. And the flock is constantly in danger. And that's what Jude is telling that congregation. You're in danger. They've crept in already through the side doors. They're already in your midst. They're already working to destroy you from the inside. That's not a pretty picture. I know it's not. It's a hard thing to go through. We need to learn to trust the Lord more because, after all, our theme is He is able, right? The Lord is able. God is able. And we need to trust Him. We're just building here. As we're going through our studies together, we're building brick by brick with a simple foundation to our understanding that we need to trust Him more and more and more. And so, I know, as as I study through all this, and I think about it, I said, you know, we're spending a lot of weeks identifying a false teacher. And that's not uplifting in many different ways, is it? We come away saying, oh, I don't know, is that edifying? It is. It is. By the time we get to verse 17 and on through the rest, which is next year maybe, all of this will fall into place. We understand and we say, oh, that's what we're supposed to be doing with it. But we have to identify them. We have to know what they are. So we're working from verse 12 and verse 13 like we did last week in verse 12. We dealt through three pictures. And all of those pictures are really based on a nature scene. And all of those things are really good except the way they've turned them around. The simple thing we start with here is oceans are great. Water is super. We were dependent on water, aren't we? There's all those things. It's wonderful to know there's that much water in the world. There's a lot of it there. But what if it's got a reef in the middle of it, and you're going through it on your boat, and you hit that? Then it's not so great anymore, is it? You think that uh, clouds might be wonderful too, especially us farmers around here who watch the crops. We're looking for good rain at the right time. Is there bad rain? Yeah, there could be bad rain. We could have a terrible time. What if it rains 17 inches in one day? We'd be in trouble, wouldn't we? But we like the good rains. We like that. But we don't care for clouds without rain. They go by, they produce nothing. If we're needing it, it gives us nothing. The picture over and over in verse number 12 are are things that generally are designed for your good, but they're being used in a bad way. Trees, fruit trees that don't produce when you need the fruit. You get the picture. And that's what I'm trying to underscore to you. There is nothing positive a false teacher brings to our midst. We don't sit around and think, boy, we wouldn't mind having one or two little false teachers laying around, would we? We don't say it that way because we know they're destructive. And that's the picture Jude is presenting to us. So we go into one more today. 
and I said only one more because I saw my notes after I got through with the one, and I said, nope, it's only one today. And that is wild waves of the sea, verse 13, casting up their own shame like foam. Like foam. This is not a pretty picture either. None of these benefit, and this will not either. I want to just show you a couple of thoughts as we go through this. Wild waves of the sea. Let's define the term just for a few minutes, okay? Wild. Agros is the root word. Agros, we know what that word would be if we put it in the start of almost a lot of words we use around here. Agriculture and other things of that nature. It talks about a country, uh, a field, for the most part, that's the way the Greek word comes across. And so the idea is living in the wild. If you're using it as an adverb or an adjective here, it's like living wild. Living in a country, in the wild. In a, in a, some people use the word savage or fierce or untamed. Just some ground left to go. It's just a, a wild place to be. And uh, that's the first word we have here is untamed waves. Now, even in Psalm 23, it's described that the shepherd would take them to still waters to drink the sheep. Why? Because sheep don't want to drink from wild waters. It's too too violent. It's too wild. Maybe that's true of cows too. I don't know. I've never watched, never took a cow out to drink. Uh, I don't know what they, if they prefer the still, I'm sure they would. Most of us would. It's kind of like if you were given the option of drinking from the drinking fountain or the water hydrant. You would say, I'd take the drinking fountain, wouldn't you? I have to confess, I didn't do this, but I laughed about it a lot. We had a drinking fountain in our school when I was in school that we knew where the valve was underneath it. And we would crank that thing all the way up. And then sit there and wait for the next victim to come by. And that didn't just spray. That was the fire hose. I mean, that was like okay. We all laugh about that. We thought that was great. But we play with that fire, that little water hydrant thing all the time. Like I said, I didn't do that. I'm, I wasn't like that. It wasn't me. I just laughed about it. But wild waves. You're going to put a picture in your head in just a few minutes here. But I take you to one uh, simple picture in Matthew, chapter number 8. And I thought it was rather interesting because the kids who are coloring their little bulletins this morning, that's the story that's on the front of the bulletin too, where Jesus was with his disciples on the sea. And while they were there, a great storm came up. And... Uh, the boat, it says in verse 24, there's, it arose a great storm on the sea and the boat was being covered with the waves. Can you imagine that? The, boat, the water's coming over. It's coming into the boat. And Jesus was sleeping in the boat. And the disciples were very, very afraid. And we mark that especially because several of those disciples were fishermen. And they were experienced to storms, but this one really hit the mark. It was significant enough they thought they were all going down. And they went to wake up Jesus. Those are the pictures I have in my mind 
as I start this passage in verse 13, talking about wild waves. Nobody's encouraged by them. Nobody sits around and says, boy, I like wild waves. Right? There's nothing about it that's, that's endearing to us. I used to uh, spend some time uh, canoeing a lot when I was younger. Loved canoeing. It was a lot of fun to do. Uh, I enjoyed that peaceful, serene canoe ride going down a nice little river. We did it. There were several in Indiana that were fun. When the water was up, when it was down, we carried the canoe most of the route. But um, we would float down that gliding in the water. I just loved to see the water split off the front of the canoe as it came past us. And, and then the motorboat would go by. All you could do is clamp onto the side of that thing and ride it out with the waves and the wake that comes from the back of the, the motorboat, and it just bounced you all over the place. I grew up around water. I was just a few miles uh, uh, or so from Lake Michigan, northern Indiana, right up there at the very top of, of uh, Indiana there at Lake Michigan. We would go over there quite a bit. I grew up wanting to see an ocean, though. I'd seen a lake a lot, but I wanted to see the oceans. And so, over the course of years, we were able to do that. Uh, I was always desiring to see bigger water. Got to see the Gulf of Mexico. I thought that was pretty big. And then one day we were out in Baltimore area, and we took a drive out that way so we could see bigger water. Got a glimpse of the Atlantic Ocean. That was really fascinating. And then a few years ago, Pamela and I went out to Oregon. And this time, I really wanted to see the Pacific Ocean, so I, I found a hotel that was right on the shore. And I made sure our room was right on that side of the hotel, and we were able to go and stay the night there. And I kept the windows open all night long, because I just love the sound. If you've ever fallen asleep to the sound of the waves, it was really quite impressive. Very peaceful picture there. Jude is not giving us a peaceful picture. Understand that? There's a lot of scenes that we could go through our minds and talk about, but this, this what is supposed to be beautiful and maybe even useful is destructive. And it makes us fearful. You know, waves like this can destroy a foundation of anything in no time at all through the process of eroding in such a hurry. You know that when you see floods go on and how it strips out underneath the house and picks it up and carries it off. You see the destruction that water can bring. Just get the picture already that what Jude is describing is not a good scene. Wild waves. Wild waves. I find that interesting because when I compare that to Ephesians 4, which is a place I, I do take you quite often, it talks about uh, the dangers of the waves. Let me read it to you here. Ephesians 4, it's talking about the role that we all have in the church, from the pastor all the way down to every single member. It says that he gave some, Ephesians 4.11, as apostles and as prophets and as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ. That's our maturity. We're all here together to see that one another is maturing. All right? You have a role in that, and I have a role in that. We're all here together to see that we're all maturing. He says, and we'll be done when we attain to the unity of the faith, 
and to the knowledge of the Son of God, and to a mature man, and to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's our goal. When we all look like Christ, then we're done. So, are we still at work? I think so. All right. As a result of this, this is the contrast. We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves. Carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. That's where the false teacher will lead you. Deceitfully, in his scheming ways, lead you away from the maturity that you need to have in Christ Jesus. He will lead you away from that. And it's pictured as waves. Waves that toss around children. Bouncing them from place to place. That picture is before you here in just this simple picture of of being strong and mature and looking like Jesus Christ. We're not to be immature because then we're childlike and we have a huge risk of being carried off by wild waves of false teachers. That's the picture I see in front of me as well. You know what I like about all this, though, as I'm reading it? God knows that this exists. Isn't that good news? He already knows this. He knows that these people come into the church. And you may say, well, why doesn't he get rid of that? Wouldn't that be great? Maybe next Sunday God went and purged the whole church of Jesus Christ and got rid of false teachers. That might be a little alarming to see. But why does he let it happen? Do you know that this is prophesied to happen? God not only knew it, but it's part of the plan. You say, why? Why? So that his children would learn to depend on him more. When you read these passages, it's supposed to bring you to say, oh, I need to stay close. Because there's dangers out there. As a church, we need to stay close to him. Because there's dangers out there. And he's left the dangers there. So that he would have us more dependent on him. Does that make sense to you? It's very important that we understand. God is in charge of this. He is in control of this. This is not an accident. And this is not off his plan. It's not off the radar. He already knows that these things exist. And that's why so often in Scripture, he warns us about it over and over and over and over again. And that's why I'm thankful in the book of Jude, when it comes down to it, it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from falling, to help you stand, make us stand in his presence, blameless with great joy. Remember, he once told the winds and the waves to stop it didn't he? Because he's able. He can stop wild waves. He can remove false teachers all the time. He could do that. Usually, he doesn't. Usually, he doesn't. A shepherd could get rid of all the enemies that would bother his flock. But what we read even in Psalm 23 is that he feeds his sheep in the presence of the enemies. 
the sheep can still eat. The sheep need to stay close, right in the presence of the enemy. The enemy, the false teacher, the wild waves, all of that is to bring us closer to him, to trust him. Challenges tend to make us better at prayer, doesn't it? Don't they? Challenges drives us closer to him and trust. Over and over. There's a song by the, the Ball Brothers. They're a southern gospel group. And they sing a chorus that goes something like this. Sometimes he calms a storm with a whisper, peace be still. He can settle any sea, but it doesn't mean he will. Sometimes he holds us close and lets the wind and waves go wild. Sometimes he calms the storms. Other times, he calms his child. I said, oh, that's a good picture. Wild waves. Wild waves of the sea. Casting up their own shame like foam. Foaming up their own disgraces. That's literally what it says. Foaming up their own disgraces. Foaming. I, I picture foaming at the mouth for some reason. I just picture that right away. Foaming at the mouth. They're, they're exhibiting their, their vile passions. What's interesting in this, when I was working through this little text and describing these things, I realized he's using participles here. And you English people out there can enjoy this. It's using a, an, a verb to describe someone. All right. Sometimes we use adjectives a lot to describe, and like red or tall or something. But running is also an adjective. The running boy. All right. It's a participle. It's an action type of characteristic, and this is a is used in this way as well. It's an active and continuous character trait. Is what he's trying to describe. They are always foaming up. Is the picture. said, well, that's not very pleasant either, is it? Foaming up. What, what is that? Well, many times when you do anything that's foaming up or growing in this sense or whatever, it, it's talking about an um, exhibition of sorts. There's something going on that shows maybe they're what they think is great. It actually comes down to pride. They're showing off more and more and more, and they think that they're impressing people with it. The, the way people go about trying to show their pride today is showing, showing how they could do something more aggressively or more disgustingly or, uh, well, there's all kinds of pictures. I'm not even going to go into that. You know exactly what I mean. They're always outdoing the next guy in the shock factor. Or something, and that's supposed to impress us. I'm never impressed with the July Fourth hot dog eating contest. You ever tried watching that? Guy stuffing seventy some hot dogs into himself. It's like, is that impressive? To you? I hope not. When you make a July Fourth picnic, is that what you think? How many hot dogs can I eat today in five minutes? It's like, wow. And we're supposed to be impressed by that. Our world is. Our world is. The scripture talks about those who have drinking bouts. In other words, contests. Who could drink the most? 
When they're casting up foam here, it's for a reason. They're doing it on purpose. This isn't just accidental, you know, side effects that come with their, their kind of leadership. They're doing this on purpose to impress you with something. They're doing something, and, and really, when you get down to it, none of it is good. They unblushingly, Thayer puts this in his definition, they unblushingly exhibit in word and deed their base and abandoned spirit. All that they leave behind is shame and disgrace, like the dirty foam along a beach left by the wild waves. Matter of fact, this word is plural, in case you're interested. We're talking about disgraces, shames. We're talking about dishonors and dishonesties. Anything, many things that are impure in abundance. I like to call it this, pollution. That's what they bring. That's what they bring. I, I have an opinion, and it's, I can't prove it all the way in Scripture. I could show you a lot of examples. But my opinion is false teachers eventually will show themselves to be very shameful people. It's not uncommon in Scripture. When a false teacher is described, the first thing they describe is their doctrine. The second thing they describe is their behavior. And it's almost always that way. It's the behavior that's so evident. And it's usually after they've gone through. And there's a lot of hurting people because of that behavior. It's a mess. It's a very big mess. This is shameful foam that's coming up. Uh, One quote. Listen to this quote. That being inflated with pride, they breathe out, or rather cast out, the scum of high-flown stuff of words in grand, grandilo, I'll get it, grandiloquent, diloquent, grandiloquent. I think that's it. Grandiloquent style. At the same time, they bring forth nothing spiritual. Their object being, on the contrary, to make men as stupid as brute animals. Such are the fanatics of our day. You may justly say that they make only rumbling sounds. They seem at one time to carry their disciples above and then suddenly fall down to beastly errors. They imagine a spiritual life when fear is extinguished and when everyone heedlessly indulges himself. When was that written? Wild guess. Recently? 500 years ago. John Calvin. The picture hasn't changed, has it? It's still that way. Inflated pride. All the mess that comes with it. When I pictured this and I was thinking through the shame that comes from these wild waves, I remembered a commercial, 1970. Yes, we had TVs back then. Mine was black and white. I didn't know there was color until I was a teenager. Then suddenly the whole world was full of color. It was amazing. But we had a black and white TV. But in 1970, there was a commercial about an Indian on a canoe. And maybe you might remember it. There was canoeing down a, a river. It looked uh, like a very beautiful river as the canoe started into the scene. And then as they're going by, there's newspapers floating on the water. And all kinds of debris started to show up as he's going down. And then you look at the back. It's no longer trees, but there's 
smokestacks of factories all over the place, just ugly scene of of the smokestacks and the filth and the dirt. And he comes up to the shore and he steps out among tin cans and all kinds of bottles up on the beach and other kinds of trash. And he looks out and the camera zooms around to see what he's looking at. There's a massive highway going through there and all these cars are flying by. And somebody in one of the last scenes grabs a bag. It looks kind of like a McDonald's bag full of junk and throws it out the window and it lands right at his feet. And the last scene they have is the Indian with a tear going down his cheek. 1970. In Winona Lake, Indiana, where I spent uh, 10 years of my ministry in that area, very quaint little picturesque town, beautiful little place to go. It sits right on the lake, of course. Uh, and the good number of people that live there only come there during the summer months because they have little cottages, and none of those houses were really big enough to live in, but there were a lot of beautiful little cottages along there, and they had their boats, and they, they would go out in the water during June, July, and August, basically. It's just a, a beautiful place to see. There was a creek that came down out of the hill that came down and fed into the, the lake there, and uh, many of the little kids would like to go and fish there. They and their grandpa or somebody would stand there with their little fishing rods, and they're trying to fish right out of the creek. But usually, upstream, somebody had washed their boat. And it wasn't long before the very end where the rocks were, just before it goes into the lake, it's foaming up. Soap suds from somebody polluting the water. We saw that all the time. It was always a sad sight in the midst of all that. But I go to perhaps the biggest one I ever remember was going up to Lake Michigan, like we, I've already said we were there. During the 1970s, the industry, industry area up there, the steel mills, used the lake as its wastewater uh, deposits. It's where they put the, their junk And I remember going there one summer, and it was in the news. It was best not to go to the beach because the lake, Lake Michigan, was yellow. It was just as yellow as can be. And fish were dying, and they were covering the beach. Literally. I remember this as a kid. You couldn't walk any step without stepping on a dead fish as you'd walk across that beach. They were everywhere. And we couldn't go into the water and play, so we made sandcastles. And my brother had a knack of putting little fish heads in all the walls uh, around his thing. And people, that's not too impressive, but you know, as kids, what do you do? you got all these dead fish. But uh, it was a very ugly scene. All of that to say, when you see this image in verse number 13, is there anything there you liked about it? Wild waves that cast up foam. Is there anything pleasant in that picture? That's the whole point of the picture. It's to make us stop and say, ooh, boy, is that ugly. That is what a false teacher can do to a church in no time. In no time. There will soon be waves. Wild waves. Hitting you from the left, hitting you from the right, bouncing you up and down. And then once they're gone, all you have is shame and foam laying around. It's a mess. I used to work with a, a group that we were into church rescue work. That's what, what I did many times, church rescue work. And we'd go into churches that were struggling. 
most of them were just on their last breath, hoping to survive, and, and we'd go in there and say, okay, we're going to help you with this. But we always had to find the cause for the problems. There was one church south, south of uh, Fort Wayne. You're not going to believe this. It's spelled differently, but this is the name of their church, the Toxin Church of Faith. Yeah, it wasn't spelled with an X. It was with a C. But we said, that's exactly what's wrong. We got inside there and found out it was toxic. The whole thing was set up in such a way. It destroyed, it destroyed, it destroyed. And then they get to a point where they had allowed all this to happen, and now it reduced their church to practically nothing. And then they call up a group like us and say, could you come and fix it? That's like taking your mop and your shovel and everything else to go clean up the mess. In many cases, it's too late. Quite honestly, it was one of our, our processes in, in helping with churches like this. At times, we'd go in and say, okay, this is first thing we do. If you trust us, this is what we do. We're going to change the name of your church, <laughs> which in that case would have been a good idea. But uh, we always started with, okay, we're going to start from a clean slate here, but we can't have attachments to what that was. That's a real difficult ministry to work in, to try to get them back on their feet and operating as they could, because false teachers tear it up that bad. They tear it up that bad. That's why I'm setting this to you as as an intense warning, and I think Jude is doing the same thing in these pictures. Not, Not one thing here is productive that you're reading in these verses. They bring fear, They bring chaos. The church is in danger when these folks creep in. Nothing is settled. Nothing is calm. Just like waves that strike you left and right and up and down. And you might be impressed with the sound that comes with it. You might think that, wow, this is great. There's a lot of activity here. But it's all destructive. And it leaves no value for the church in the end. It's a tendency, folks, for false teachers to be boisterous. Do you know that? Watch them sometimes. They tend to be rather boisterous. They tend to be alarming. They tend to scare the flock into subjection. That's all part of the techniques. They blast and they boast. And you may say, is that a fair evaluation? Well, let me tell you the contrast. When Paul's writing to the folks in Thessalonica, he said, We prove to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly caring for her own children. When he wrote to Timothy, and he's describing what an elder ought to look like, he says, Not addicted to wine or pugnacious. You know what pugnacious means? Prone to fight. Right? Prone to fight. Not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle and peaceable and free from the love of money. There was a school I was attending years ago that uh, I was sure, even listening in the classroom, they were teaching us how to fight as pastors. They wanted us to fight to win. And the guys went out from that school, and that's exactly what they did. As pastors, they'd go in there and they'd put people in their place. That was not pretty. A lot of churches fell apart because of the pastors trained to fight. Scripture does not tell the pastor to fight. 
This is the picture, that he's gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. In Titus, when Paul wrote to them, he says, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. And then James starts to describe God's wisdom. And God's wisdom is pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. So what does a false teacher do? Quite the opposite. He's not peaceable. He fights. He's not gentle. He's boisterous. He tends to go on to scare people into subjection when leadership is not that way. Shepherds don't scare their sheep unless they want them to faint, right? Just, ah, see if they fall over. Shepherds don't scare their sheep. They lead their sheep. That's what I'm going to just simply say to you. When you're looking for, you know, like, here's your pastor. Evaluate me. All right? I don't want to be a false teacher. Okay? I don't want to lead you wrong. I want to do it the way God has designed it to be. And when I study these things, I get concerned about it because so many churches are attracted to the loud and the boisterous and, the, and whatever, and they think, well, that must be it. That's not good leadership. It's just not good leadership. It tends to destroy. If they watch the results, that's where it tends to go. That's why I'm concerned about this because a lot of leaders today seem like they're on the warpath. I watch for pride. I say pride is pretty, pretty obvious after a while. I watch to see if they've got a pugnacious attitude. I watch to see how a man gains his position because he's louder than anyone else. And those things alarm me. And I mark that kind of a man. If you watch long enough, you start to see what comes up on the shore after he has had his waves go by. The church, folks, is to be edified, right? That's what we're here for. We're to edify. Shames, disgraces, those things are pollutions. They're pollutions in the congregation. The young in the faith, the immature, who do not seek to grow in God's grace, and we're trying to help them do that, they're most likely to follow the example of the false teacher. They're most likely to fall for it. Their hearts can easily turn toward evil. The old nature thinks that sin is attractive. They turn to men who turn God's grace into sin. That's what Jude is telling us here. Does that alarm you? Does that alarm me? Enough for us to be careful, to be watchful, to keep our eyes open to the filth that's washing up on the shore? We ought to be warned of the pollution they bring, even though it's not a pretty picture, and you're not going to find it on a greeting card either. But it's just to bring you back to my appeal. My appeal as your pastor, and I say this a lot, we need to keep on growing. We need to keep on growing in God's Word. We need to stay close to our shepherd. We need to be strong. We live in an evil day. And it seems to grow worse by the minute. This world is not better. The waves of false teachers casting all kinds of shame upon our churches today. So I call upon you to trust the Lord more and more and more. That's what I, I appeal to you as. Remember, 
that uh, even when the waves are wild and out of control, he is able. He is able. He can calm the sea, but he can certainly calm his child. Verse 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. That day is coming. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority. And that's never going to change. It's before all time. It's right now. And it is forever. We need to trust Him more. Heavenly Father, this simple picture before us is not a pretty picture, but it certainly does bring us to several things. Number one, we sure do appreciate who you are. We love the God you are. How you're so good to us. And your wisdom is pure. Your desire for us is great. It's, it's fantastic to know that there's no shadow in you. There's nothing evil about you. Everything you've called us to be is, is in righteousness and goodness and holiness, and purity, in faith, and in trust. And you're calling us to good things. And as we grow in our understanding of you, we get to get that glimpse more and more about how beautiful you are. Thank you for loving us. We were really much like that shame on the beach. And you saw us there in our sins dead in our trespasses, and through your mercy, your great love for us, even while we were sinners, you sent your Son to die for us. What an amazing thing you did, that you would clean us and make us right and call us your children and to draw us away from the things of this world and to call us to pure lives and holy lives and godly lives that you would invest so much in us, Lord, that not only is this life one that you're active in, but you long for us to be with you forever. And that day's coming too. What an incredible display of your beauty and your love for us. Lord, I pray for every single one in our room here today that you give us eyes like you to see filth as filth, to see shame is shame. To see the pollutions of the world and, and yet to see more than that those who bring it about and who, who seem to have free access in our Christian communities. Lord, give us eyes of discernment so that we know what to avoid, that we're not caught in the waves, we're not trapped in the sins, we're not drawn in by the boisterous picture and the sounds and the effects. But give us wisdom as just sheep who trust their shepherd to walk behind you and not be attracted by this world, this sinful, evil world around us that is infiltrating our churches and pulling us down and keeping us from growing. I just pray that you give us all a heart's desire to grow in Jesus Christ, that we want to know him the power of his word and his resurrection 
And even in the suffering that he has for us, as Philippians refers to in chapter 3, that we have an all-consuming appetite for Jesus Christ and to grow in him. That this church might be strong, be able to stand firm in evil days. Lord, do your work in our midst, for every single one of us need it. Every single one of us need it. Help us to grow and desire to grow and to help others grow, we pray, that we might avoid the traps of the evil one. We pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen.